Welcome back to Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts. We are your hosts, Eric Hart and Ashley Flowers. And today we're wrapping up our conversation with Ross MacDonald. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. So last week we talked with Ross about all of the props that he makes for film and TV and that he's just started getting into Broadway props as well. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about where you work and your shop and all of that. Okay. So firstly, one thing that shocked me is that you don't actually live in LA, which we talked a little bit about on the last episode. You actually work in Connecticut and work from home in Connecticut as well. Right. It's just a one-day FedEx shipment away from anywhere in America. So (laughs) So why not? (laughs) Why not? Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, I... I th- I kind of wondered to myself, would I be getting more work if I relocated to, to Los Angeles? But I do so much work on the East Coast, too. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it would affect that. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'm working on on the East Coast is television. And with that, there's a lot of really quick turnaround tight deadlines. And I often have to either drive a prop in or hire someone to drive a prop in or, you know, meet the prop master halfway on the highway somewhere. <laughs> you know. So, you know, if I moved out to LA, I would lose that ability on the East Coast, but I would gain it on the West Coast. So I don't know. It just doesn't really seem to matter all that much where you are these days. And I would imagine you probably get a lot more space for your yeah. shop for a lot cheaper Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have. A, uh, I work in a two-story barn. The original building was built in 1835. Uh, so it's a rickety old barn. It was sort of renovated, kind of rebuilt in 1929. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly sturdy, a little bit drafty, kind <laughs> of cold and freezing cold in the winter. That's <laughs> That would be another reason to move out to LA. Um, Very true. That's why I did. <laughs> yeah. But it's got a lot of room. And uh, I have a lot of junk, so it's marriage made in heaven, I guess. Um, I have a lot of printing equipment. I have a the ground floor of the barn is given over to a letterpress shop. I have uh, two uh, vintage printing presses and a large paper cutter and uh, a lot of related letterpress equipment, uh, as well as, oh God, I'm going to say maybe 20 cabinets of type, lead type and metal type and wood type. Uh, Mm -hmm. Most of it's 19th century. So, you know, I can very easily replicate a 19th century or even 18th century um, document, a poster or uh, whatever, just by quickly setting up type on the on the bed of the press and, and printing it. You're not downloading the uh, the old timey font. You're actually using the same typefaces that they were using back then, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. You know, when I was collecting a lot of the type, I did a really deep dive into and and you know, I, I started off as a printer. I should say, I, I started off as a printer when I was a teenager, and. Uh, then I started a letterpress shop uh, with a group of people up in Toronto. This would have been in the 1970s. And spent a lot of time printing stuff and buying up old type and equipment and learning how to f- repair and fix old equipment and move old equipment and stuff like that. And then sort of moved sideways into uh, into graphics, um, doing illustration mainly for magazines and, and books and things like that. And then you know, got into uh, film stuff later in life. Um, 
you know, I just always wanted to keep that ability to print my own stuff and, and mainly for promotional purposes. Um, mm-hmm. And when I started collecting equipment again uh, in the mid-1990s, I did a really deep dive into the history of graphic design and the history of printing, printing equipment, and the history of type design and just found it really fascinating. It's something that I was not at all interested in when I was actually working full-time as a printer. I didn't care <laughs> design or history or any of that stuff. And uh, when I started up again in the mid-90s, I, I just went down a total rabbit hole. I would spend every night poring over old type books and reading articles about the developments of certain types of printing presses and stuff like that, not realizing that I was kind of building up this base of knowledge that was going to really come in handy uh, for designing period props because, you know, if somebody wants something that's from 1930, I know exactly what typefaces were in use, in common use in 1930 and and what typefaces wouldn't have been in common use in Mm -hmm. that time for various reasons. Either they were out of fashion or they hadn't been designed yet or whatever. And I can just jump right in without having to do a lot of research for that particular type of uh, thing. So yeah, again, you know, I can go down and if I'm asked to do an 1870s, you know, wanted poster, I can go down and set up something on the bed of the press and and mm-hmm. it'll be dead accurate in terms of the type of paper and the fonts and the colors and all of that stuff. So, you know, that, that stuff really comes in handy uh, for, for a lot of prop work. And then upstairs is um, basically props making, prop fabrication and uh, illustration and design. Uh, so that's where the computers are. And, and that's where I have a large uh, light table that I do all my drawing on. And then a large work table, a four by eight work table that I use for all the prop fabrication. Mm-hmm. And then a huge reference library that covers two walls, almost three walls. Oh, wow. And then all of the stuff that you need for paper props. I have uh, five typewriters and I have check writing machines and, hmm. you know, just tons of the equipment and also uh, lots of paper and envelopes and file folders and labels and stickers and, you know, all that stuff that you need to quickly create, you know, an FBI file folder or whatever the heck it is, because a lot of times you have to produce it in hours. You don't have days or weeks to produce some of this stuff. So you kind of have to have 25 of everything somewhere. Right. You can't just have a ream of office copy paper and expect to make everything out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I have seen people uh, working in art departments on on shows um, who will basically just have access to, you know, the one inkjet printer they have in the office and, uh, you know, eight and a half by 11 bright white paper. And they will design stuff with paper color in the background and print it out and kind of wrinkle it up. And, you know, it, it feels and looks kind of half-assed. I mean, it can work in a pinch. And there's been times where you basically have 10 minutes to do it and that's your only option. So you do what you have to do. But it's so much more satisfying to be able to actually create something on paper that looks like paper from the period. And if it's going to be seen in close-up, printing it letterpress so the type is pressed into the paper, you know, just it just feels much more right Mm -hmm. to uh, do things that way. What techniques would you say you could use if you only did have, you know, a laser printer to use and that was, you didn't have 
the letterpress equipment that you have, are there techniques that you would suggest to do to that paper to make it look more accurate? Yeah. I mean, if you um, don't have 85 different kinds of ivory colored paper, <laughs> um, you know, w- one thing I would say is if you can get some ivory colored paper to start with, is if you're creating period props, um, starting off with bright white paper is a real handicap. So if you can start off with pale ivory paper, not like real darkish ivory paper, but pale ivory paper is going to be so much easier to work with. And then, you know, when I'm creating a paper prop, one of the things that I think is really important is to kind of create a backstory for the prop, to think of the prop as a, as a character, not just as a mm-hmm. thing that an actor holds. And think about, like, when, if you think about an actor, when they appear on screen, there's all these subtle cues to the viewer about who this person is, and maybe what their backstory is, and maybe we learn some of that in the course of the film. And all of that's really important to that character. And it's the same, I think, with a prop. You know, you think about the backstory. So if it's a book that somebody, you know, pulls down off of a shelf to look something up, you kind of go through this process of thinking about, okay, is it an old book? Is it a new book? How long has it been on that shelf? How many times has it been pulled off of that shelf? And think about what that does to a book. If a book is supposed to be 100 years old, like let's say they're pulling down some ancient tome to look out some group of crusaders from you know, the, the 1300s, then it's an old book and it's probably not sat on that same bookshelf through its whole life. So where's it been, you know? Um, and, and you think about what it does to a book, pulling it off of a shelf. People tend to put a finger on the top of the spine, tilt it out, mm-hmm. and then they'll grab it in the center of the spine and pull it all the way out. You do that a hundred times to a book, it's going to leave marks. Uh-huh. It's going to leave marks, you know, at the top of the spine and in the center on either side of the spine. And also the bottom of the book is going to rub on the bookshelf. And a book sitting a long time on a bookshelf is going to collect dust on the top edge. And also the thing about books is they're hydrophilic, they're water loving, mm-hmm. uh, and they will absorb moisture from the air and then exhale that moisture into the air when the humidity goes down. And they'll do it again and again and again. They're like a living, breathing thing. And when they do that, they're pulling in dust particles and contaminants that are floating around in the air. So when you see a book and you open it up and you look at it, you can tell right away it's old if it is old. And the things that are telling you that are these visual clues. And, you know, those things that that book has gone through for the past hundred years are all part of those visual clues clues that you're getting to tell you that it's an old book, but it's Mm -hmm. not just, you can't just smear coffee or tea across a page of a book and expect it to look realistically like an old book. Mm -hmm. So you think about that backstory and every kind of prop, every kind of paper prop is going to have a different backstory. Piece of paper might've sat unused in a file that was never opened. That piece of paper isn't going to be all stained and crinkled. It might be 100 years old, so you have to think about how do I stain it to look old but not all beat up. On Mm -hmm. the other hand, if an actor pulls a letter out of his pocket and it's a a period piece set in the 19th century, well, people didn't have the access to soap and water to wash their hands all the time. You know, it's going to be dirty if it's handled a lot. If he's been carrying Mm -hmm. it in his pocket, it's going to be wrinkled. You know, whereas some guy in the same movie who goes to, you know, his desk and pulls a piece of paper out of the desk, it's going to look completely different. 
even though mm-hmm. they're in the same time period in the same movie, those two props need to look different. So, you know, to start, think about that whole backstory and you'll have to make that up half the time for props that you're working on for a show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for, for instance, I had to create a book for a, a small production that had to give off this vibe of evil um, without any particular visual cues that it was evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was supposed to be bound in human skin, but you can't, you know, how do you convey that? You can't stick a label on saying human skin. <laughs> right. So I had to figure out a way to sort of accent the leather of the binding a little bit, just so that it was noticeable. So that when the actor then said, you know, this book was bound in human skin, you go, oh, you know, that's kind of creepy. And you, you remember the sort of wrinkled leather. And then the other thing was the book had had an ancient history. And during part of its history, it had been buried with the corpse of a witch. Mm. So you think mm. about what that does to a book. <laughs> Be in a coffin six feet underground with a rotting corpse, you know. <laughs> So there's a lot to work with there in the backstory yeah. already from the script, but but you you know as the prop person you have to think about what that's going to look like and and think again about how a book ages it ages from the outside edges in. Mm-hmm. So again, if you just swill brown stuff over the entire page, it's not really going to look convincing. Mm-hmm. So you know, paper always is going to look more stained around the outside edges from handling, even if it's a sheet of typing paper from, you know, a movie from the 1930s, people are going to grab it by the top edge and whip it out of the typewriter. So it'll have little wrinkles on the top edge. It won't be perfectly flat because it's been curled around a roller. Uh, If it's supposed to be a few years old, it'll start yellowing, but it's from the outside edges in. So again, backstory first and then age. And then as far as aging goes, um, I don't use uh, coffee or tea. Uh, I just, I find them, I don't know, it, it, they're problematic from a lot of different ways, uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the main things is they're highly acidic. So if you're making a prop and you want to keep a record of props that you've made for shows, which I always do, I always keep a copy of everything. I make an extra copy for myself. Mm-hmm. If you're aging with coffee and tea, it's going to uh, severely age that paper over the course of the next few mm. years because of the high acid content. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use uh, watercolor dyes, uh, which are easy to work with. Um, the other thing about coffee and tea is I, I, you know, I don't have uh, plumbing in my studio. So for me to make coffee and tea, I have to walk into my house and make it over there. Uh-huh. And then <laughs> I can't store it out here because it just goes molding and rots. Mm-hmm. Whereas watercolors don't do that. So they're much more portable. You know, I'm not saying I never use coffee and tea. I have used them on occasion, but I just find that working with watercolors uh, gives you more flexibility. You can alter the color. So you could, mm-hmm. you can layer the effects of the aging by, you know, maybe applying really thin washes of a sort of a yellow ochre, very, very watery washes of yellow ochre. And then layering maybe some, uh, you know, a little bit of a thin wash of sepia on certain parts on top of that. Sepia is better at uh, replicating things like handling, like thumb hand marks and thumb marks. Uh, Yellow ochre is good at uh, replicating just general aging. So you just get a lot more flexibility if you're working with uh, watercolors. 
And then the other thing I do is a lot of what ages paper involves moisture. So I get it. I get the paper wet. Um, and sometimes that's all you have to do. If you're trying to make something look just a little bit old, if you get that piece of paper damp, uh, I usually sponge some water on it either mm -hmm. all over the whole thing or just around the outside edges. Uh, in the case of a book, I, I wet the three exposed edges, get them fairly wet with the book closed. And uh, the book, because of capillary action, will suck that water in mm -hmm. between the pages. If you keep putting water on the outside edges, it'll suck it in. And then if you apply watercolor, after you've got it damp, it'll suck that in. And what you'll end up with is, without a lot of work, you'll end up with something that's very convincingly aged throughout every single page um, once you once you dry it, of course. So it's the same kind of thing with, you know, a flat piece of paper, like a map or a document of some kind. Mm -hmm. Get it either wet all over or wet around the outside edges. And then usually that's where you want to apply the aging just around the outside edges um again if you're if you are working with bright white paper you'll want to get it wet all over and put a thin wash of something like yellow ochre or type of color like that over the entire sheet of paper very very thin washes um it's better to build up thin washes than to put on too dark of a wash uh, mm -hmm. as, as one layer because again you you can get a lot of flexibility you know, that's sort of the basic process. And then uh, once you dry a piece of paper that's been wet, even if you've done nothing to it, it could be a sheet of bright white copy paper. If you get it wet and then dry it with a, with a heat gun or a hairdryer, it'll mm -hmm. just automatically look old. It'll look mm -hmm. used without applying anything to it. It'll kind of wrinkle up and get distorted. And that's what happens to paper. You leave a piece of paper sitting around for a year, it's going to suck a lot of moisture out of the air and it's not going to be, you know, perfectly pristine like you just pulled it out of the package. It's going to, you know, take on a little bit of a three-dimensional feel to it as it warps a bit. And um, the other thing that happens with getting paper wet is it kind of loosens the cellulose fibers in the paper. Mm -hmm. Paper, I used to work as a paper maker uh, also, uh, paper basically is formed from uh, cellulose fibers, either wood pulp or cotton pulp or whatever. And there's kind of a chemical reaction where the fibers bond to each other and they form the sheet of paper. By getting it wet again, you sort of loosen that bond. So the paper takes on a kind of a, a rougher, slightly rougher, looser look than, you know, a freshly made sheet of paper. Um, so again, just getting it wet and you can also accelerate that look and that process by then heating it when it's wet. Mm -hmm. So if you, uh, I used to have an industrial, uh, hot plate that you could heat up to a thousand degrees. It was great. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, I lost it actually on working on John Wick. But um, what I would do is when I was doing a lot of individual pages of documents that were supposed to look old. Um, I would wet them and do whatever staining, depending on you know what the document needed. And then I would just press it down quickly on that hot plate, just for a split second, and it would flash the water to steam. So the water that's in the paper would almost instantly flash to steam, which kind of blows apart the fibers on a kind of a microscopic level. Uh -huh. But it just 
you know, a brand new piece of paper has this kind of crispness to it. Mm-hmm. It just loses all of that and becomes slightly floppier and just much more convincing as an older document. So, um, you know, that used with discretion, that technique can be uh, a really good one as well. Um, and then you can also do things, you can practice with things like using, uh, you know, the old invisible ink trick that, you know, we all learned when we were kids. Like if you write something in lemon juice and then you heat it up, the lemon juice turns <laughs> brown and you can read the secret message. And um, <laughs> so you can use things like lemon juice for uh, staining. There's other uh, things as well. And that can provide a really convincing thing. Like some documents, I mean, you know how it is when you look through an old book and there's some stain and you think, oh God, the somebody like 80 years ago was reading this and eating their lunch over it or something. And <laughs> like a, a drop of mayonnaise or something yeah. <laughs> turned brown on the page. So with uh, using something like very dilute lemon juice, uh, sponged on a piece of paper, that's damp and then heat it up really fast so that the lemon juice starts to brown can give you this really great look uh that's hard to replicate with um with just watercolors um so there's yeah you know it's all basically comes down to dampness and and staining almost exclusively um there are occasions where i'll once i've aged a document then i'll uh rub graphite on my fingers and uh, go over it uh, to sort of add thumbprints and, you know, the kind of dirt that a a book or document will get around the edges from being handled by dirty hands. Um, Graphite, graphite will do a really good job. You can buy um, powder graphite for uh, that's used as a lubricant. It's a lot easier than just trying to, you know, rub a pencil on your hands. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember one of your uh, pieces in your portfolio, you were actually flipping through every single page over and over to kind of give it that look like it was read over and over. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the other thing that happens with books in particular, but a lot of documents um, is that they get handled over Mm -hmm. and over and over. And the only way you can replicate that is by kind of handling every single page. So if I'm making a book that's supposed to look really old, uh, when you first make the book, even when you've dampened it and stained it, a lot of the paper still looks, it has that crisp look to it that new paper has. Like a brand new book always looks like a brand new book. You can always mm-hmm. tell when a book is brand new. It's yes, just, it has, yes. the spine hasn't been cracked. The pages haven't been flipped through. And the minute you read a book, it's just looser overall. Yep. Yep. If a book gets read a hundred times, it's going to be that, you know, loose times a hundred. So what I'll do with a, a book that's supposed to look very old and very well used is I'll go through and wrinkle each page slightly. So I'll wrinkle it, kind of crunch each page a little bit differently. Maybe one I'll just crunch in the middle. The next one I'll crunch both corners and go through the entire book and crunch it a little bit. And then I'll put it in a book press or I'll put it under a weight Uh, because a, a piece of paper that's just crunched looks like exactly that. It looks like somebody just grabbed it, crinkled it. Right. But if you then press it, you've kind of broken the crispness of the paper. Um, The book will sort of spring open a little bit like an older book does. It doesn't get that real perfectly flat thing when it's closed. Mm -hmm. So it'll have a bit of that spring, but you won't have that real obvious wrinkling uh, anymore because you've kind of pressed it back out again. You know, it, 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 seems like a, a lot to do, but it's really worth it, I, I think. Um, yeah. You know, you can tell. People can tell. People know what a brand new book looks like. 
um, oh, yeah. and they know what an old book looks like. It's it, You don't have to be an expert to get the vibe off of a prop that it looks right. Yeah, it's interesting because when I watch movies or shows or anything, you know, obviously I'm looking probably more at the props than other people. Right. But when my girlfriend and I watch something, I'll be like, that just doesn't look right. And sometimes she'll be like, oh, that chair or oh, that cup. Like she realizes I saw something that wasn't right. So then she starts looking at the props and it was like, oh, right. That doesn't look right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you just know, you know, there's always something off. Right. It used to be, I, I think it's, it's pretty much universal in my experience now that everybody wants everything to be really, really right. The director wants it, the, you know, they demand it, the, the props people and the art department, everybody wants that now. Um, there was a time, you know, 15 years ago where you, you'd have to sort of explain to people why it was worthwhile making something look right. You know, taking the extra time to make something look right. There was a sort of there was still some of that, a little bit of that attitude of, oh, well, no one will know, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it's really changed because, you know, everybody can freeze frame everything and study it for hours on a <laughs> giant HD TV set. So, and, you know, they'll then go online and say what a bonehead that director was for using a 1950 phone book in a 1945 production, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. So you get called on it. And it's not by experts. Yeah, there's there's a couple of designers who post stuff about typefaces that are used out of context or, or, or um, they're anachronisms in movies. But, you know, most of the people who are noticing this aren't experts necessarily. So, yeah. And I mean, isn't it just so much more satisfying as a person who makes props to get it right? Right. You know, to know yeah. that. This it's so is, true. You know, you do the research and you realize the real stuff is really cool. You don't need to sort of make up some fantasy version of what an old book on the occult looks like because the real ones are incredibly cool looking. Mm -hmm. Right. You, know, you don't need to go nuts with the fake rolling eyeball on the cover or any of that kind of stuff. So it's just the thing with a lot of the stuff that I'm making is it's really mundane stuff. You know, it's it's like a mentioned before a driver's license or it's a you know a form or a checkbook or whatever it's not these huge beautiful hero prop books it's very very mundane stuff it's the kind of stuff where if i had to design this stuff you know if my job was to design this stuff for the real world i'd open a vein after about a month you know? <laughs> I couldn't take it. But and every once in a while I'm I, I'll be working on something and realize, God, you know, this is just this is just some guy's checkbook. But it's so much more satisfying to work on because, you know, you're doing research like what did checks look like in the nineteen twenties and why did they look like that? They had a very distinctive look and there are certain things that are on them that aren't on modern checks and vice versa um and just sort of you get this kind of understanding of why that thing needs to look like that and it's so much more satisfying to know that you've got it right and you don't necessarily care whether anyone else will even notice that. Yeah, I always think my favorite kind of shows are ones where it feels like everything just kind of came together accidentally, like they just turn on the camera and everything is there, as opposed yeah. to like, oh, uh, somebody obviously thought, like, I'm going to make this a cool prop and <laughs> put it in here to show off how I make cool props. Right. right. Yeah, I know. It's got to work. That's the thing. I mean, that's what I was saying before it's got a you're part of the storytelling process 
mm-hmm. know, the prop is part of the story, the whole story that everything in the movie or the play is telling. And, you know, you think I'm, I a set decorator friend once said to me that when the curtain rises on an empty set, the audience is already uh, learning something about the characters f- from looking at the set. Yes. You know, it, it's not just stuff. It's part of the story. And, you know, it's got to support the story, not try to hog the limelight, but it's still got to look right. You know, if it looks cool, that's kind of a bonus. But mm-hmm. So for people who are interested in learning about the actual process of letter pressing and all of that equipment, one, where do you find that equipment? And two, what would you advise to somebody wanting to learn those older techniques? There's some uh, great online resources. If you, I mean, one place that I would start is go on YouTube and look up you know, letterpress printing or look up typecasting. There's a lot of great videos of the equipment uh, running and being used um, that just are fun to watch, um, even if you aren't a printer or a typecaster. Um, And then there are museums. There's a museum of printing history in uh, Los Angeles. There's one uh, here in the Northeast. Uh, There's one down in Houston. so there are museums, they've got tons of incredibly great equipment and uh, people who are, are using them. And um, you can go and just watch and learn and ask questions and see the stuff in use. Uh, there's the Hamilton uh, Wood Tie place up in Wisconsin. There, there, uh, there are places like that all over. And then there are groups of you know, letterpress enthusiasts, amateurs, Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, professionals who still like to do it as a hobby um, all over the place. And you can find out about them usually by looking on, you know, Facebook or or if you ask around at one of the printing history museums or whatever, there's lots of groups and there's lots of people who um, are happy to talk to uh, people about what they're doing. And then finding the stuff, it's, you know, I wouldn't recommend buying a large printing press on eBay, um, (laughs) but, you know, there are um, resources for finding uh, used printing equipment. There's um, uh, a friend of mine has a used printing equipment, letterpress equipment store. He sells the stuff. It's called Letterpress Things. He has a page on Facebook. Uh, John Barrett is his name. And he has very uh, sort of beginner-friendly packages. It can be a hard thing to get into because there's a lot of arcane knowledge and there's a lot of little bits of equipment that you need. You you don't just need a printing press and a little bit of type. You need all kinds of stuff to set the type up properly and put it, lock it into the bed of the press and stuff. And John Barrett will sell... Um, like a complete package of all the little bits that you need. And he sm- sells uh, small presses. So if you want to start out and kind of fool around with it and see if it's something that you might be more interested in, uh, you could kind of dip your toe into it a little bit and just, you know, see like, yeah, this is great. I want to get more equipment and more type and get more involved. Or, you know, that was really fun, but I don't think I ever want to do that again. And then you call John and say, hey, can you buy this stuff back from me? (laughs) Um, because it can be very labor intensive and a lot of people just aren't really prepared for the amount of work it is. And then of course, there's the thing of, if you're using a small tabletop press, which is, you know, might be all you can afford and all you want to start out with, you almost immediately bump up against the limitations of such small pieces of equipment. Uh, you can, you can only print on small pieces of paper. Uh, your print speed is very low. 
if you at that point go, yeah, this is fantastic. I really want to do this more. You're going to have to make a larger, you're probably going to want to make a larger investment and uh, mm-hmm. get a, a, a press with a larger bed, automatic inking, just these little things that make it uh, so much easier to do a print run of three colors and 500 copies or something, which, you know, or on a larger size sheet, or if you're interested in doing posters or, you know, books, um, you're going to need a larger press and, and ability to print a little bit faster. So, but that's, that's a good place to start. And then there's, there are, um, there are smaller pieces of equipment and type and things uh, that are on eBay. You do kind of pay a premium for that stuff on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're de- buying directly from someone like uh, John Barrett at Letterpress Things or from some of the uh, Letterpress people who occasionally will swap, meet and swap equipment or things. And, and they're often, they often have Pretty much every letterpress printer I know often has a few things for sale. It's going to be a lot cheaper than buying it on eBay, but you have to kind of search those people out. And there are events. Uh, letterpress meetups usually happen, um, you know, all over the country at, at different times of year. Uh, they are called, the traditional name for that is Waze Goose. W-A-Y-Z-G-O-O-S-E. That's the name for a... If you hear that weird word, you know it's a bunch of weird letterpress people getting together. (laughs) You know, talk about letterpress and try to sell each other bits of equipment and type and stuff. And there are uh, associations like the APA is one of them. And Mm -hmm. oh God, I forget the names. But there there are associations that you can search out that are uh, groups of letterpress enthusiasts all over the country who are swapping printed things and tips about how to fix presses and <laughs> where to find type and stuff like that. But just just don't come here and try to learn it from me. That's all I <laughs> right, right. You're done. <laughs> I'm done. Just forget about me. <laughs> yeah. I'm done being a commercial printer too. That was was fun while I was younger, but I I don't want to print your wedding invitation. Right. It just becomes a job. It does. It becomes a job. And it's a lot of trouble. Printing things by hand on a letterpress is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to print every color separately. You have to set up the type by hand. And you can't really charge people enough to to pay yourself for the amount of hours involved. And so it it just becomes, you know, and there is always somebody who's going to want to do it cheaper than you. Um, yeah. So it really can that kind of printing can become a grind. But if I, you know, if I am going to put in that much time and effort, I I'd rather do it for something that I want to do for myself. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for coming on our show again this week. It's been such a pleasure hearing all of your amazing stories. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Silk Mache and email us with any questions or ideas at propspodcast at gmail.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And check out our website at silkflowersandpapiermachehearts.com, where you can find all of our old episodes. This has been another episode of Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts with your hosts, Sarah Hart and Ashley Flowers. We'll see you next week.